It's good to be here today with you guys. Good morning. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. Um, it's good to be in the house of the Lord on Resurrection Day, that's for sure. Uh, I'd like to begin by pointing out that we've already heard uh, one account of Jesus' resurrection through the scripture reading, through what Spencer was reading for us. And uh, so that kind of sets the stage. What I'd like to do this morning is take a look at Jesus' first appearance to his disciples after his resurrection. That's where I'd like to focus today. So a little different kind of approach to it. Instead of just kind of preaching through what we just heard read, we're going to look at like his first encounter uh, with the disciples, all of them together uh, in a room. And so we're going to see how that went down and what took place and what was said there. And, and then we're going to be able to extract some, some great blessings for ourselves through that whole uh, deal there. Pretty awesome stuff. I'd like to examine how he came to them and then, of course, what he said to them. And we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to continue. So if you're in John, just stay right there. And we're going to look at 2019 to 23. I think Spencer ended at verse 18 of 20. So we're going to look at 19 to 23. I'll read it and we'll pray one more time and then we'll, we'll kind of get into it. I'm pretty pumped about this. You guys ready? You good? Are you awake? Are you attentive? Are you you're just, you're just pumped up? You're you sweaty? No? Is it stuffy in this room or is it just me? Because I'm like always hot. This room just, it seems like there's no airflow in it. it. Do you feel that? Maybe I'll just preach really hard and you'll catch some of my wind. <laughs> we don't want your wind at all. Uh, there's plenty of it. Ask my wife. Um, all right. That was weird too. All right, 20, 19 to 23. Let's look at it together. Ready? I'll read it out loud. It says, Jesus appears to the disciples, right? That's the little context there and it says on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them and said to them this is what he said to them peace be with you and then it says when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What on earth does that mean? We're going to find out. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this Easter Sunday. Thank you for these folks that have, have come down here today, Lord. Um, just, just to be together, Lord, to, to hear a sermon, to sing some songs, to explore, to learn, to grow. Whatever it is, God, thank you for these folks that are here. I pray that you'd bless this time, Lord. I, take, I pray that you would take the, the truths, all biblical truths, but these truths that we're going to look at today, and you would impress them upon our hearts Change us from the inside out, Lord. Make us new people. Refresh the saints. God, do your will and your work here in this room, Lord. Lord, it is a tragedy when we come to a place like this and we hear the gospel proclaimed and we remain as we are or as we were before we came in, Lord. Change us, Lord. Save some of us, Lord. Sanctify us, Lord. Change our hearts, our minds, our perspectives, all that we are, Lord. May we yield to you in this time and learn from the risen Christ. 
and what he has to offer us today. We anticipate how you'll move here. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Amen. All right, guys, let's take a look at 19. Let's begin in 19 of that passage. John 20, 19. Is everyone there? If you're there, say I'm there. Good. And we don't usually put the verses up. We want you looking in your Bibles, right? Never forget the time I went to a church and the guy said, basically, we've got everything up on the screen so you don't have to bring your Bibles to our church. I'll never forget that. And that was just weird to me. We're at church for crying out loud, right? Shouldn't we be bringing our Bibles to church and looking at our Bibles? So we're not fancy schmancy on all the media and stuff. We want you to look in your Bible. If you've got a Bible, you're there. Let's do this. Verse 19, it says, on the evening of that day, is what John records. And he says, the first day of the week. And it says, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, what did he say? Look in your Bible. What does it say? Peace be with you. That's right. Now, what day is the apostle John, he's the author, what day is he referring to here? He's referring to the day that Jesus rose from the grave, which was on a Sunday. That's the history tells us that it was on a Sunday. That's why Sundays are called Resurrection Day. That day, it was on a Sunday, which was the first day of the week, he records, right? On all calendars, the first day of the week, as far as I know, is Sunday. So we're talking Resurrection Day. We're talking Sunday. We're talking first day of the week. John also tells us... Uh, that what we're about to read took place during the evening, if you notice in the text there, right? It says, on the evening of that day, on the evening of Resurrection Day, first day of the week, Sunday. So this is evening time, this account, this event, what took place here. It's a real thing. It really happened. It happened at night. Look at all the details. We got the day. We got the time. We got all that we need. Good stuff. Now, where were the disciples gathered? This is something that John does not communicate. This is something that he does not say, but I believe it's safe to say they were in that place called the upper room. You've heard of the upper room, right? The upper room is the place where they celebrated the Lord's Supper on the night of his betrayal and arrest and all that. The upper room went on to become the meeting place for the early church when it was about 120 members before Pentecost. And so it's the upper room. This place was an upper room and a really nice posh house in Jerusalem. Somebody wealthy owned it. I think it was uh, maybe the Apostle Mark's mother or mother-in-law, something of that nature I've read. They're at this house, I believe. It's their meeting place. It's night, Sunday, Resurrection Day. That's where they're at. That's where it's playing out. That's where it's going on. And keep in mind, too, that just a handful of days before they had been in that room on Thursday night having the Lord's Supper. Now, John wrote that the disciples were gathered in the room disciples take notice disciples right they're gathered in this room now now who is he referring to as far as the disciples go now you got it's important to lay down all this groundwork before we really get into the meat of the message we want to get the context we want to get the storyline you can't figure out a movie that's playing out without watching some of the you know the preliminary stuff in it and they've got to build the story and so that's what john's doing here so who are these disciples that are gathered in this room at this point, there were about 120 male and female disciples, somewhere around there, uh, according to Acts 1.15. Maybe there were a little less at this point, but there weren't more than that many disciples in the region, uh, period. So was, was it this group of 120 
that were in this room at this particular moment? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I believe John is referring to, who's he referring to as far as the disciples? I believe he's referring to the original male disciples that Jesus chose to follow him during his ministry, those disciples that he appointed to follow him and to learn from him and then really to go out and, and preach the gospel. But now, something interesting to note is that not all of these disciples were present. Judas Iscariot was gone out of the mix, probably dead by this point, if not close to it. He killed himself. And then uh, if you go on ahead a little bit and look downstream, just, just a hair down, and I think 24, you'll see that Thomas, who was one of the disciples, he was not present. They got back together like eight days later or something that reads down in the John narrative, and then Thomas comes, and then, and then he's kind of reunited. So what do we have here? I believe we have 10 of the original uh, male disciples that were the ones that were gathered in the upper room on Sunday evening, which was the first day of the week and the very same day that the Lord rose from the grave. So there's our context. That's what's happening. That's what's playing out. Now, <coughs> I'd like for you to notice that John points, uh, points us to three very important truths uh, in that very introductory passage into this section. He points us to three truths immediately, three things that we need to take notice of. What are they? Number one, the doors were locked. Number two, the disciples were frightened. They were afraid. And number three, Jesus came and stood among them. Three things that we start with right there, right out of the bat. Now I want to cover each of these three things and, and kind of exhaust them a little bit, not to the fullest detail, but just to kind of help again build a case for where we're going. Let's take a look at the first one. The doors were locked. Okay? You'll notice if you look at the passage, we've read it. He appeared. Jesus didn't have to knock on any doors. Jesus didn't have to let, have someone let him in. You see that there? Jesus uh, did not have to ask to be let in. He didn't have to open a door himself. Okay? He didn't have to do any of those things. It says in the text that he simply appeared what? among them what the doors were locked the only way to get through a door is to unlock it and go through right or blow your way through the wall with a sledgehammer or have somebody let you in or knock or whatever right yeah, that would be the normal thing we've all come through doors today many of them right when I got here first thing this morning the band was rehearsing the doors were locked I had to use a key to get in I couldn't you know kind of go on to the other side of it if I would have ran fast enough and hit the door, I could have. No, what we see here is that he simply appeared among them. Translation, poof, he was there with them. Interesting. Now, when they saw him, that he appeared, uh, it would appear that they felt that he was like a ghost or a spirit or something of that nature. I mean, wouldn't that freak you out? Okay, the person that you you know, walked with throughout Palestine, you know, the Mediterranean region, the region of Jerusalem and, and that whole area there. You've been with him for days and then he disappears and he's gone and you're in fear and you're in this room and then all of a sudden the guy's back. Poof, he's there. That would be bizarre. That would be strange. That would be out of the ordinary. They thought he was a ghost. They thought he was a spirit or something. But actually in verse 20 it says that he showed them his wounds Okay, he's persuading them. Then in Luke 24, 39, he said, what did he say there? He said, touch me and see. And he says, for a spirit 
does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Okay, so he immediately, he, he appears before them and he wants to assure them that he's not Casper. Okay, that he's not, you know, from Ghostbusters 3 or something of that nature. Look, I, I, you know, I, I got the holes. Touch me, you know, ghosts are translucent or whatever and, and if they exist, right? He's proving to them that it's him. He's showing them this. So we can see that Jesus was there in physical form, in some form of physical form. He had a body, but his body wasn't exactly like ours. He had a resurrected body, which means that he had special abilities, special powers. In fact, he had the very first resurrected body in all of history and the only resurrected body in all of history. He had a special resurrected body. The promise of resurrection is glorious because it is that we shall, those who are in Christ, shall receive a similar like body. And so you can poof in on your friends. No, I don't know if it works like that. That'd be cool, right? You'd get, I'd, I'd show up and they'd be talking smack about me. Poof. And I'd be like, I poofed myself right out of there. Can't believe what they were saying. That's what would happen to me. Very interesting, though. He has a body, but it's a resurrected body. It's a different body. He had a physical form, but it was different. Now, one of those powers or abilities that he had was that he could appear wherever, whenever he wanted to. That is a, a reality. That's what he did. He used this power to do that in this instance and in other instances. Now, the implications of this are absolutely huge in terms of our own lives. This means, okay, uh, in principle, because he could appear here, doors were locked and these things, this means that he can go where no one else can go. He can go where no therapist or counselor can go. Hear me. He can go where no physician or specialist, oncologist, whoever it is, can go. He can go where no lover can go. He can reach us, he can reach into us, anywhere, at any time. He can transcend all boundaries, go beyond all boundaries, even the boundaries that sin and human depravity put up. He has no, the risen Christ, has no spatial limitations, whether in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm, or in the emotional realm. Do you hear me? No limitations whatsoever. Now, this reality of who the risen Christ is makes him unlike everyone else in the entire universe. Unique, special, beyond all others. His capabilities are unimaginable. They really are. Now, do you have any idea, and I know many of you do, probably all of you do, do you have any idea just how complex you are as a person? Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Think about that. The women right now are going, this guy's preaching. There ain't nobody more complex than a woman. Been married to one for a long time. There's multiple levels of complexity. You want, let me show you how complex I am. Okay, her, there's da 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 I mean, it's just amazing how God has wired the women. The women. Men, we're complex. Beer and pretzels, you know, we're done, right? Pizza. 
But think about that. How complex are you as a created being, physically, emotionally, and spiritually? We are so complex as people that our own complexity baffles and bewilders us at times, does it not? And ultimately brings us to levels of frustration of pulling whatever hair we have left out of our heads, right? Do you ever get so frustrated? Like, I cannot figure out what is going on with me. What is my problem? Why do I feel like this? Why am I up and down? I was, you know, slaying dragons yesterday. Today, I'm hiding in a cave you know, kind of the King David thing. I mean, we are all over the place emotionally. We're all over the place spiritually. Physically, one day, you're rocking like docking. Next day, blah, barfing. You know, it just, we are complex and we get so frustrated and baffled by our own complexity. We can't wrap our fingers around what's going on with us at times. You ever gotten that to that level with yourself? What is wrong with me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is wrong with me? Whether referring to your spiritual, the aspect, your spiritual being, emotional being, I ask myself that all the time. And physical sometimes. I feel great one day, I don't the next. We are extraordinarily complex as people. Multiple layers, multiple levels, and it baffles the human mind. And right now you have scientists that are trying to figure it all out and trying to nail down all the complexity. And the most they can come up with is that we evolved from monkeys. And some of them come up with more than that. It seems like that's a good default mode. We were chimps, now we're not. Evolution, to me, seems like more of an impossibility than God just creating beings. But even as created beings, we are extraordinarily complex to the point where I get so frustrated, I can't figure out why are my systems messed up? I'm like a, I'm like a PC running on Windows. One minute I work, the next I got a virus. I need God to transform me into an apple, you know? I need to become an iMac. That was weird, too. I'm saying weird stuff today, and I don't even care. We are complex, aren't we? I don't know why I feel this way. I can't figure out what's going on with me. Our complexity is just a, it's just a mystery to ourselves. There are things about us that, that neither we nor anyone else can figure out, right? There are things about my wife Huh? There are things about me. We just, I, there's things I can't figure out about myself, let alone that she can figure out about me. There's just, we're complex. But the risen Savior has the ability to transcend, to go far beyond all areas and complexities of our lives. There is no place he cannot reach. You are completely accessible to him and by him. There is no region. There is no place that he cannot get to. In your spiritual life, physical life, and emotional life. See, he's the resurrected Christ. And through the resurrection, he has the power and ability to go where no one else can go to figure out what no one else can figure out. He already has you figured out. This is an amazing, astonishing truth. Because I tend to want somebody to be able to figure me out. 
as hard as I try to communicate myself to me and to others, and I can't get across who I am or what I struggle with or any of those things. There just seems to be so many boundaries. I can't even communicate what's going on with me. I'm so complex. And yet, the risen Christ knows me perfectly and knows exactly what areas to go into, where to touch, where to heal, where to do surgery and remove. You are completely accessible to him. Now that is a glorious truth and that is a frightening truth because there is no closet where your skeletons are safe from him. Did you hear me? Some of us in this room, in this very room right now, believe that God doesn't see certain things that we do or he doesn't read certain thoughts. He doesn't hear things that we say. He, doesn't, he, he is unaware of our lusts, whatever those things are. The resurrected Christ knows exactly what's going on with you. That is a wonderful thing and that is a fearful thing in a way. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Second thing, they were afraid, right? They were frightened. Verse 19 tells us that the doors were locked. If they would have had an alarm and an alarm code, they would have had that sucker on there. The doors were locked. Now, why? It says because the disciples feared the Jews. Who? Their own countrymen? Their own people? No, no, no. Jews is a reference to the religious leaders. The Apostle John, as he writes his gospel, will often, has often, uh, he has referred to the religious leaders as the Jews. Instead of calling them Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, some other C, he calls them the Jews. So these are the religious Jews that we're referring to. They are the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. John refers to them as the Jews in his gospels. Now, these Jews, these religious leaders, were the ones who did what? They opposed Jesus. From day one, they even opposed his own prophet, John the Baptist. That's who these guys were. They opposed Jesus. What else did they do? They plotted to kill Jesus. On several occasions, they had Jesus arrested, right? They tried Jesus at night in a felonious kangaroo court. You know, they weren't allowed to do court in the middle of the night. There was no night court. Remember that dumb show? There was no night court in Jewish culture. You couldn't do the night court thing. I was that an old movie or TV show? I don't know. I'm really dating myself here. That didn't exist in that culture. And yet they tried Jesus at night in a kangaroo felonious court. What else did they do? They delivered Jesus to Pilate, right? What else did they do? They persuaded the crowds, right? Remember? Persuaded the crowds to call for Jesus' crucifixion. And they saw to it to have Jesus nailed to a cross and put to death. That's who we're referring to. The disciples feared these men, feared these people, feared these guys, feared these Jews. Why? Makes total sense, right? Because they were Christ's associates. They believed that they were headed for the same fate as Jesus. They believed that the Jews were gunning for them too, and they were. This is understandable that they would be locked away in a room in fear, isn't it? I mean, your guy, the guy you've been following and, 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 and he's been leading you and, you and you've been doing the things that he's been telling you to do and you've been affirming him and going out on his behalf and coming and going and you're spending all this time with him. You're, you're, you're singing campfire hymns with him. You're doing all these things with him. You're traveling for three 
years, right? You're doing all this stuff. Your guy is taken and killed, bludgeoned, beaten, sacrificed, murdered, wasted, nailed to a cross, and you're his associate. What makes you think that you're not a target? Is this not understandable? See, I look at that and I go, these guys were weak. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't even been in Palestine. I wouldn't even been in the area. I would have been somewhere else. I would have swam to Hawaii, try to save my own neck. It's understandable that these guys feared the Jews. Look at what they had done to their master, right? Oh, they were weak. They're not like me. Yeah, okay, Simon Peter. They feared these men. They locked themselves away, and rightfully so. They were locked away in fear, and yet into that fear comes Jesus. Into that fear comes Jesus. This is great because we all struggle with fear and we can all, if you're in Christ particularly, rest assured that Jesus is ready and willing to draw near to you during those moments of fear. Now I wrestle just as a pastor, as a man, as a human being. I wrestle with all sorts of fears. I have fear at times. Sometimes it's, it's just crippling. You know, I fear that I'm ill-equipped to lead my family and raise godly boys. Not really an easy thing to do when you live in this world. Might be a little easier to pull off on Venus where there's no other people, but then again, I'm there, we're in trouble. I fear that my children will grow up to despise the Lord, that they will make shipwreck of their faith. Heck, I fear that their faith is even real. I fear that I'm, I'm not qualified, I'm not, a, I'm not equipped, I'm, I'm not ready enough to teach God's word and to pastor this church. That is a fear I wrestle with on a weekly basis. Every time I start writing a sermon, every time I get a counseling call, every time I go to an elders meeting, I'm stricken with fear that, man, am I even the right guy for the job? Do I know what I'm doing, Lord? Am I equipped? Can I do this? I do not believe I can. That's a fear. I fear that I may backslide into worldliness, into ungodliness. Every day is a struggle for righteousness. And, and every day I feel like the forces in my flesh and the devil in this world and all that it has is just trying to draw me back into this world, enter into the worldliness, look at that woman a certain way, think these thoughts, get on that computer, entertain yourself with those images, watch these programs, listen to that, particular, whatever it is, that is the struggle. I, I'm always fearing that I'm going to slip right back into worldliness and, and become who I was 12 years ago. That's a fear I wrestle with. I do not. And I, I say to myself, that man is dead. But why is it that he wakes up every morning and he's laying right next to me going, hey, dummy, let's do this today. I got guys I work with who knew the old me. One of them keeps asking me, bring the old Phil back just for tonight. And I say, he's been crucified with Christ. And then three hours later, I act like him. <laughs> he's back. He was crucified. He was resurrected with Christ. I fear that I will backslide and slip into worldliness. A great fear that I have at times is that I will become useless to the Lord. 
that, that I will do something that will, will forfeit myself from ministry. It doesn't take much to take out a pastor or an elder. The qualifications are extraordinary. One little slip, one goof up, one, one bad night of being stupid, you're done. And that just scares me. That I fear that I will do something, that I will do something wrong, that I will disqualify myself. I don't want to be useless to the Lord. I, I, I fear, and I'm only 43, but I fear this, I fear that I will not hold fast to the faith during my dying days. I've been preaching sermons for I don't know how many years now and saying all this stuff, am I going to believe it when I'm really tested? Am I going to cling to these truths that I've been proclaiming boldly for all these years? Do I believe it myself? What will I do when I'm taking those last breaths? Everyone's criticizing men like J.I. Packer and, and Billy Graham and all these guys. You get you know, 75 years old, your mind goes, and you start saying stupid things. When you're 75 years old, you've seen a lot of your friends go and be with the Lord. And let me tell you something, that messes with a man. You start to question, you start to ask, is what I believe true? Will I die well? Will I do, as Paul said, finish the race well? There's nothing I want more to, than to do that, than to honor the Lord to the end, to cross that finish line for him and for his glory, to have served him. And I fear that on my dying deathbed, will I hold fast to the faith? And what Jesus is saying in this action is simple. I come to my own when they are afraid. I don't wait for them to get their act together. I don't wait for them to have enough faith to overcome fear. I come to help them have enough faith to overcome fear. That's what's happening. You hear me? He's not sitting on the outside of the room looking to see if they'll get it together and just, and, just, and just polish that faith and get that faith to a level where he can actually work through it and do something. No, he comes in the midst of their fear. Poofy shows up. And he comes near to us, as it says in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with what? My righteous hand. Getting a little worked up. Three... Jesus came and stood among them. We see this at the end of 19. The point here is that Jesus came right into the middle of their meeting. He didn't come to the edge and call out through the wall and deal with them as some sort of distant deity. No, no. He wanted them to see him and know him and believe in him and love him. Our God displays both transcendence and imminence. In his transcendence, he is far beyond all things. 
greater than all things, larger than all things. He is beyond all things in His transcendence. But in His eminence, He is here and He is everywhere else. He is both transcendent and He is imminent. Now the prophet Jeremiah put it like this. 23, 23 to 24. Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Eminence transcendence. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. And then he says, do I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. He's everywhere. He's transcendent. He's beyond all of it, but he can be right here in our midst. He is here in our midst. Another example of this is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It illustrates the eminence of God. God came to us in flesh. That's what incarnation means. God became flesh. He came down. He came to us in the form of flesh. And the ascension of Jesus Christ illustrates the transcendence of God. He took, God retook His heavenly throne. You see how He's both transcendent, beyond all things, and yet imminent? In that he's here. Verse 19, we see an example of God's imminence. Jesus came and stood among them. Aren't you glad that our God displays both transcendence and imminence? He is so unlike the gods of false religion who are either completely earthy or completely disconnected and beyond reach. We are dealing with a unique, special God here. One who can govern the heavens, the universe from heaven, in all his splendor and majesty and glory and transcendence, perfect holiness, and yet come and enter a room where men are afraid. That's a special. There's no one like him. There is no one like the risen Christ. No one. That is who God is. Now take a look at what Jesus said when he stood among them. What did he say? What's our context? It's the night of the resurrection. The evening of Sunday, dark, they're afraid, they're locked away in a room. He appears out of nowhere. And what does he say? Peace be with you. In the midst of that fear, in the midst of that turmoil and that struggle and that worry and that concern, will our fate be that of Christ Jesus' fate? They're wondering, they're worried, they're panicked. They're not even sure what happened to Jesus. They know he was laid in a tomb. They really don't know what's going on. They're confused. And he comes and he says, peace be with you. Jesus came to them in their moment of fear to bring them peace. Glorious. Look at 20. When he had said this, because God understands that his words are not enough for some of us. When he had said this, 
He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 20 shows us that the peace Jesus offered the disciples is peace that had been accomplished when he died for them on the cross. Now this reminds me of Isaiah 53, 5 where it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what peace and with his wounds we are Healed. This is extraordinary what Jesus is doing here. He came to the disciples to bring them peace and reconciliation. And the method by which he purchased that peace for them, which was through his wounds. Because by his wounds we are healed. You see the connection there? It's as if he's standing in their midst showing them the wounds and saying, I was crucified for you. I purchased peace for you through my crucifixion and through my death and through these wounds. And it's by these wounds that you can have peace. It's by these wounds that you can have peace, that you can have healing, that you can have restoration, that you can have reconciliation with God. Now think of who he's talking to here. These men fled from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They ran for their lives. Only one didn't, and that was John. Well, actually, I think John fled too, but he showed up at the cross. He was the only one in a bunch of women at the cross. These men were Jesus' closest confidants and when it came down to it and, and trouble started and it exploded and Jesus was arrested, they all fled for their lives and ran like a bunch of cowards. They betrayed Jesus. They ran to protect their own hides. I guarantee you part of their fear, part of their struggle that night when Jesus appeared to them was that we had abandoned the Lord. We did not do the things that we said we would do. We did not suffer with him. We did not follow him to the end. Especially you, Peter. Part of their struggle was that sense of condemnation and guilt and grief over abandoning the Lord. And what does he do? He appears to them and shows them the wounds and says, I purchased peace for you. I've cleansed you of your sins. You see these wounds? Blood poured from these wounds. I paid for your peace because I paid for your sins. Your sins are removed, so therefore you can have peace. That's what he's saying by showing the wounds. It's Isaiah 53, 5. All the way. With his wounds we are healed. Now Piper identified, John Piper identified five relationships where the crucified and risen Christ brings peace into our lives. It's by these wounds of his that we can have peace. What are they? Number one, peace between us and him. That's the first and most obvious meaning of our text. He is standing there among them, offering himself as what? A friend and a helper, not as a judge. He didn't go in there and say, you guys all walked away from me and left me in the garden by myself to deal with all this junk. That's what I would have said. He didn't say any of that. He came to offer them help in the midst of their fear to be a helper to them, to gird up and build up their faith, to give them peace by showing them the wounds. It's by these wounds your peace has been purchased. You can have it through me. Look what I did for you. There's no condemnation there from Jesus. Just perfect love and the assurance 
that he cares for them and loves them, that he's with them to help them and to support them. Peace between us and him, that's something that he offers through the wounds. Number two, peace between us and God. That's why God sent Jesus, so that God's justice and wrath could be satisfied another way besides through eternal punishment. Who's going to pay for your sins? Are you going to allow Christ to pay for your sin once and for all, or are you going to pay for them for eternity in hell? Think about that for a moment. Do you want them taken care of by someone who sacrificed himself to take away those things, to heal you of your sin, to give you peace? Or are you willing to pay for those things yourself for all eternity? Because that's what we're faced with here. Oh, I can, I can handle it. No problem. God sent Jesus to do what he did so that God's justice and wrath could be satisfied another way besides eternal punishment. God makes peace with us by substituting his son's suffering for our penalty. Jesus was penalized so that you would not have to be. now he comes to us through what Jesus did as a loving father. How about number three? Peace between us and others who are in Christ. To be reconciled to God is to be reconciled to all who are reconciled to God. No hostility vertically or horizontally. No racism, no classism, no sexism, none of that junk. Why? Because there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28 says. Those race boundaries and all of those things are gone in the church. Peace between us and others who are in Christ is the boundary-breaking, destroying God. And in his church, it is one church, and it is mixed with all sorts of people. Different color, different tribes, different backgrounds. Weirdos like me, it's filled with a lot of people. Revelation 7, 9 says there's so many they can't be counted. And they're from every tongue and tribe. It's extraordinary. What else? Number four, peace between us and our own souls. Do you not realize that most of your trouble, if you are not in Christ and have have not had your soul secured in Jesus Christ, that 99.9% of your trouble, I'd say 100%, comes from the fact that you're not reconciled to your own soul. We're complex individuals. One of the reasons why we can't figure out what's going on is because our souls are not reconciled to God, and they're supposed to be. God created us to serve Him as image bearers. If your soul is just floating around in this chasm of of frustration and weirdness and worldliness and all of the stuff that's going on here because we're not repentant, we're not in Christ, man, what great confusion that brings into our lives and what lack of peace that we have in all of these things. It's only when the soul becomes reconciled to God that things can truly change for a person. Peace between us and our our own souls. The New Testament... Letter of the Hebrews says, to the Hebrews says, the blood of Christ will what? Purify our conscience. Purify our conscience. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9.14. The blood of Christ came through those wounds. Purifies our conscience. Purifies our soul. Puts 
to death that wandering, wondering, crazy, can't put my finger on it, longing and searching and all that. That's what your soul's doing if you're not in Christ. Puts an end to it. Oh, the precious peace of a clear conscience. How many people labor under the misery of a defiled, guilty conscience? Read on Thursday the testimony of a woman who had an abortion eight years ago and who said, I cannot forgive myself. You know what the answer is? That's what Good Friday is for. You cannot reconcile between yourself and your actions and your own soul. You will never be able to until you realize the peace of Christ that he can bring into your life. He can put your soul at ease, lock it away in him, carry it all the way unto glory when you breathe your last breath and all the way through eternity in insane bliss and splendor and joy and elation and holy, holy, holy going on all the time. Unbelievable. You'll be at the best worship service you've ever been at and it will never end. All the voices are in tune. Preaching's phenomenal. I don't know if there's preaching, but whatever, right? It's just unbelievable. Everything is perfect. That's what Good Friday is for. That's the day that the Lord was crucified when those wounds were created and that blood, blood poured out and that salvation was purchased and that blood spilled to wash away our sins and to bring us peace through those wounds. That's what Good Friday is for. Now, peace with yourself doesn't mean that you start seeing past sins as desirable. Peace doesn't mean that past sins cease to be painful, however. It means they cease to be paralyzing. The pain may not be taken away immediately over the, some of the things that we've done or been done to us, but the penalty is taken away immediately through Christ. That's good news. There's nothing worse than having that being paralyzed by your sin and, and, you know, and just having, and having to wrestle through those things for a season or the rest of your life, but man, to have to pay the price for them is ultimately way worse than just dealing with some of those things the rest of your life. Paying the penalty is far worse. Penalty is taken away immediately through Christ, and that makes it possible to heal and to move on with a hope-filled life. Peace between us and our own souls. Number five, peace with the world. Yes, when Christ Jesus died, he did what needed to be done. Colossians 1, 19 to 20, so that someday in God's time all evil will be cast out into outer darkness and the entire new creation will be full of peace and righteousness of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. It's coming with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, Isaiah 9, 7 says. At some point in the future, there's not going to be any more of this stuff going on. There will not be a lack of peace. Righteousness will prevail. Why? Because Christ is going to return and consummate his kingdom. He's already initiated his kingdom. His first pass was to do that. When he comes, he consummates it. All enemies are put under his feet. No more sin. No more devastation. No more tears. None of that stuff. It's all gone. No more struggle. No more sin. No more flesh. None of that. 
No more insane debates on Facebook over homosexuality. It's all gone. He puts it all under his feet. It's done. Yeah. Don't you long for that? Doesn't it tick you off what's going on? Don't you tick yourself off with your sin and the things that you wrestle with? Remember, we're complex. I can sin at multiple levels. It's all going to be put under his feet. Complete and utter, once and for all, reconciliation with all creation. That's what he's coming to do. Are you ready for that? Peace with the world. What an amazing achievement. The peace that Jesus has secured for sinful people is absolutely mind-blowing. And it's real and it's available. Now, how did the disciples respond to Jesus' offer of peace? The text says they were glad. Look at 21. Jesus said to them again, look at this. This is the second round. Jesus said to them again. He repeats himself. What does he say? Peace be with you. He says it again a second time. Maybe the first time wasn't enough. I don't know. Look what he follows it with. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus hit them again with the offer of peace. My wounds, take it, it's yours, I purchased it. Apparently there were some there that weren't fully convinced of the Lord's offer of, pro and offer of peace and His promise to give it to them. I don't know. Why did He repeat Himself? How often do we need a repeat? We become struck with fear and then we pray or turn to God's Word for His promises. We read them, we feel better, we begin to move on, and then, I don't know, a day or two later our fears return and we repeat the cycle. Isn't that the life of the Christian? Uh, talk about complex. Now, on a positive note, if you wrestle with the promises of God and you go back and forth all the time and you find yourself in Scripture, at least that's good for verse memorization. I got a twisted mind. That's what I was thinking. Hey, maybe I can remember some verses while I'm in here sobbing. Maybe if I remembered the verses, maybe, maybe, maybe I could count on them more when I'm faced with that fear and those things right there in that very moment. And I'd just remember those promises and I wouldn't have to go somewhere and find a Bible. Now, I think it's more than what I've mentioned here that's taking place. Jesus followed his second offer of peace with a phrase, a very important phrase. First time he said, peace be with you, showed them the wounds, ah, calmed the room down, chilled it down. A notch, right? Little celestial seasons, night tea. You know, oh, I feel so much better now. That was really hard earlier. Thank you, Jesus. The second time, no, 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 no. He follows it with a statement. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This was a sort of pre-commissioning of the disciples for gospel service. But in their minds, gospel service meant, right, going out and doing what he did, meant persecution, suffering, and probably death. 
It meant experiencing what Jesus experienced. No wonder Jesus mentioned peace be with you before he commissioned them. Right? Do you see it there? Do you see the connection? Peace be with you. And by the way, I'm sending you out to do what I did. Huh? I just had peace and you took it from me. Think about it. It's as if Jesus said this whole thing plays out like this. It's really amazing. I love the word of God. I love it so much. It's so cool. It's so crazy. It's so deep and profound and, and insane. Listen, it's like Jesus is saying, I'm here. I bought peace for you. Everyone relax. Don't be alarmed when I tell you this. Peace to you again one more time. But guess what? The Father sent me to testify to the truth, to preach the gospel, and to sacrifice myself for sinners. Guess what? I'm sending you as he sent me. You will go and testify to the truth, preach the gospel, and lay down your lives for the sake of the gospel that's what he's saying you see it it's amazing peace be with you he gives them peace and then commissions them they know what they're going to have to face and endure and go through it's amazing incredibly nine out of the ten listening actually did lay down their lives a little later on they actually purchased with their own blood. They didn't purchase anyone's sin or anyone's redemption, but man, did they make a deposit for it that they sacrificed themselves for the cause of the gospel. They laid down their own lives. They were brutalized, persecuted, chased, beaten, slaughtered, crucified, beheaded. They were put to death. So Jesus' words here were also prophetic, weren't they? Now take notice of what Jesus did in 22. I'm sorry, I've still got a cold. I'm afraid while I'm preaching it's going to fly out. You know when your kids do that? And you're like, oh my gosh, this big thing hanging out. I hate that. I can't hide this thing anywhere. All right, down by the lilies. Oh, gross. All right. So Jesus' words were also prophetic. Now take notice of what he did in 22. Look at it. We're getting there. It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus was going to pour out the Holy Spirit when he ascended into heaven, Acts 2.33. That happens about seven weeks after his resurrection. We read about it. Uh, in the first chapter of Acts, we've been studying the book of Acts. We've read that stuff. And it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Acts 1.8. The work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives is that he makes us able to do what we are simply not able to do on our own. He gives us power. So here in John 20, 22, Jesus performs a kind of acted out parable. He breathed on them and then said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Notice, he didn't say receive him at this very moment. He said, in effect, realize that my breath, my life, my word will be in the Holy Spirit. Now, we've seen this before in John 14, if you've studied there. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will what? Come to you. He returns with the Spirit. John 14, 18. The risen, living Jesus has come to us. He has sent us the Holy Spirit, His Spirit. He has breathed on us. That's what He does for Christians. 
He breathes the Holy Spirit into them so that they can be equipped for ministry and to live godly lives and to walk in righteousness, to walk in holiness, to do battle with Satan, to do battle with the flesh, to overcome fear, to over, overcome sin, to overcome entanglements and all of these things. That's what he does. See, he comes and he puts their fear at ease and then he brings a little bit more fear up because he's commissioning them to go, but then he breathes on them so they'd have the power. Or at least they'd be able to make the connection in seven weeks when the Holy Spirit comes. That's when the true power would come at the day of Pentecost. But it's like, my breath, there's power in it. There's life in it. It's really amazing what he's doing here. Come to give them peace, come to get them ready to engage the gospel. And we know seven weeks later on the day of Pentecost, man, the world was forever changed from that day on. Forever. This person, this power, this risen Christ and His power, the Holy Spirit power, actually the Holy Spirit, this person, Him, him and His power is our only hope for accomplishing the purpose He has for us. And he gives that purpose in verse 21b. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's the purpose. We have to have the power, the Holy Spirit power to fulfill the purpose. Because in our own flesh we can accomplish nothing. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like Jesus is saying, I want you to live in the world as my representatives, my ambassadors. I want you to take my peace and take my power and glorify my Father the way I have. That's what he's essentially telling these men. As my ambassadors, take my peace, take my power and glorify my Father the way that I have. John 12, 27 to 28. Jesus just commissioned them to do exactly what he had done. With the exception that they were not going to die for anyone's sins but they would die preaching the gospel. It's amazing. Look at 23. It's really cool when you think about this. He puts their peace to ease and all these things, but he comes with a specific purpose in mind to use them, which really puts to death the whole idea that I can just kind of pray a prayer and you know invite Jesus into my heart and then go about business as usual. No, you've been commissioned. You're to serve him. 23. This is the verse that's like, what? It says, if you forgive the sins, it's not that bad though, watch. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Huh? If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is an interesting verse. It sounds as if Jesus told the disciples that they had the ability to forgive sin or not to forgive sin. Isn't that how it reads? It's what it says. That we know that no, we know this according to the word, we know that no human being has the ability to absolve sins and that no human being has the ability to withhold the forgiveness of God. There's circles in the Christian church that need to get this down real quick because they go around forgiving people's sins in their own, according to their own work. It's, it's, a, it's blasphemy. No human being. Well, the verse says it, Phil. You don't understand what the verse says. I'm going to explain it to you. No person has the ability, I cannot take Aaron and absolve his sins for him. Or if he's a jerk to me, withhold forgiveness. I'm, God's not going to forgive you because I said no. And you can't do that. Now what he meant was this. This is the, this is the, there's a bunch of different views on this verse and I really believe this is the most accurate. Because it is a perplexing verse. 
The apostles were commissioned to go and preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that commissioning, Jesus was prepping them for that commission all along. In Matthew 28, at the end of the chapter, he really gives it to them. Go out and preach the gospel and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I commanded. I mean, there's the real commissioning of the apostles and the church. But he gives them these little pre-commissioning things here. Okay, so they were commissioned to go and preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And here it is. If people repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ at the hearing of the apostles' gospel preaching, the apostles had the right, they had the right, and they were supposed to, 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 they were supposed to do this. They were supposed to assure them that they had been forgiven and saved by Jesus Christ. That's what it means. They were to assure people if they preached the gospel and people responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, okay, their life changed. The apostles were supposed to assure them that they had been forgiven and saved by Jesus. If people rejected the preaching of the apostles, the gospel message of the apostles, the apostles had the right, the responsibility to tell them that they were still in need of having their sins covered and forgiven, that they still needed God's forgiveness. That's what the verse means. Another way to put it, Jesus gave the apostles the right to affirm the repentant of God's forgiveness towards them, and they, he gave them the right to declare to the unrepentant that they still needed God's forgiveness. So it's not a matter of them forgiving sins or whatever. It's a, it's a matter of them affirming that God has forgiven them by their very response. Or by telling him, you're still in your sin. You're not turning to Jesus. You're not trusting in Jesus. You've heard the gospel and you reject it. You despise Jesus. He's your Lord and Savior. There's no other. No works, no nothing that you can do is going to help you. If you continue to reject him unto death, you will pay for your sins for eternity. They had to be able to tell those things to these people that they were preaching to. Oh, you've turned from your sin and all that? Man, welcome to the family of God. Hallelujah, you're a covenant member. Ready to bring you into the church and love you and care for you and disciple you. And we want to know you and love you and be in relationship and fellowship. It's an affirmation if they've done that. If not, it, warn them. That's what the verse means. You know that every pastor and every Christian has been charged with this same responsibility? That we are required to assess and make these kinds of judgments? If someone responds to the gospel in repentance and faith, we are to affirm them of the Lord's forgiveness towards them. And if someone rejects the gospel, we are to warn them that if they do not change their mind and die the way that they are in that current position, they will pay for their sins in hell. We have to do the same thing. We're charged with this. Verse 23 applies to us. I can't forgive anyone, but I can tell them that God forgive them if they do what they're supposed to do. We affirm or we encourage them to do the right thing. That's all it is. It's very simple. But, but, some will tell you that Christians are not supposed to judge. And they will quote Matthew 7, 1, till the cows come home, which says, judge not or you will be judged. This is one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. 
this section on judging immediately follows our Lord's extremely provocative teaching concerning earthly riches. The connection between these two themes is important. It is easy, okay, right? This is what the context for Matthew 7, 1. It is easy for Christians who have forsaken all things to criticize wealthy Christians. Conversely, Christians who take seriously their duty to provide for the future needs of their families tend to downplay the literalness of Jesus' warning not to lay up earthly treasure and to place their hope in it. So in context, Matthew 7, 1 has to do with Christians judging other Christians over money, wealth, or sacrificial living. It has nothing to do with making critical judgments about the position of people's faith or no faith. If we were to just not judge anything, can you imagine what would happen in the world? No crimes would be punished. We would allow people to usher themselves right into hell because we wouldn't judge whether they're saved or not and try to reach them. How can you do evangelism without making judgments? We're not talking about judging them like, I can determine if you go to hell or not. Not that, that's not what the verse means. But we have to ask, we have to probe, we have to seek, where are you with Jesus? Are you in your sin or did he bear them for you and you're believing and trusting in him? Where are you at? We have to make that judgment and assessment so that we know how to minister to them. We have been commissioned to do the same thing as the apostles. But people will tell you you can't judge. Don't, don't judge. Don't judge me. They say that. Don't judge me. I'm not judging you like you think. You are in sin. And you're going to pay for those sins. I don't want that for you. You don't want that for you. You think you do. You've got to make these assessments and judgments. You can't evangelize. You can't reach anyone if you don't do it. So Matthew 7, 1 has very little to do with don't judge anyone anything. Oh. In John 7, 24, Jesus commanded that we are to judge according to righteousness. So if Jesus said, don't ever judge anyone, let them all go and do their thing. And then a little later on during the same kind of sermon, he says, judge in all righteousness. Is Jesus conflicted and confused? No, Jesus was speaking something about something specifically in 7, 1. And here he says, judge according to righteousness. What's our righteous standard? It's what the Word of God says. This right here tells us what we need to know and all for righteousness. It, it explains to us what righteousness is, what holiness is. And when we see that, that things don't line up to that, we make those judgments and encourage people to, to move along and to get into this. I have to look at it all the time myself to encourage myself. I need to know what righteousness is because I'm prone to unrighteousness. Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul said that we are to judge without hypocrisy. If you're going to go to somebody and say something to them about what they're engaged in, you better not be doing the same thing. Don't be a hypocrite when you make these judgments and try to... Don't encourage someone to, to get some victory in an area when you're a ding-dong and you're all wrapped up and you got no victory. That's the ugliest thing on the... I can't, that's terrible. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what I do on occasion. Don't do that. Judge without hypocrisy and... 2 Corinthians 6.14, the Apostle Paul said that we are to judge others to see if they have faith so that it is right for them to yoke themselves with others. You know, you, you, we, we hear this all the time. You're not, believers aren't supposed to marry unbelievers and we're not supposed to be like intimate, close friends with unbelievers and all that because they drag us down and all this stuff. How, how can you know if someone's going to be a good Christian friend to you, if you're a Christian, if you don't find out about their faith? Or if you're trying to court somebody and you, I want to marry this person, you've got to know where they're at spiritually. You have to make these judgments, you see? The practice of forsaking every form of judgment 
as so many in the church do today, is of Satan. Satan loves it when we don't make these critical judgments and speak truth into those positions of people because he wants them to perish. And this is happening right now as I speak. I've been debating Christians on the issue of of homosexuality and other sexual immoral things all week on Facebook. And I don't even know why I do that because it's torturous. It's absolutely alarming to see how many Christians believe and teach that homosexuality is not a sin. It is not sinful that God is pleased with it because of how two people love each other. They just come up with all these different ways to, to attack the issue. It's alarming to see how many people. I mean, you know, it's the talk of the town right now, right? It's the hot topic right now. The Supreme Court's looking at the issue and, you know, and people are fighting for their right to do it. And Christians are saying, man, we've got to maintain the sanctity of marriage and all that and whatever. And there's just this battle that's being waged on. Unfortunately, it's very political. But I'll tell you what, it's very spiritual. That's a spiritual battle for us Christians. So we need to fight it differently. But it's amazing to me how many Christians are going, I can't wait for this to happen. Finally, they can all get married and, you know, and, and whatever. And, and, and they, don't, they don't understand that by agreeing and by supporting that it's like they're taking their hand and walking them to hell. Now, is that the only sin that condemns people to hell? Absolutely not. All sin does. Why would any Christian support any form of sexual immorality or any form of immorality, period? I do not hate homosexuals. I do not. I love them as I love others. I want them to know Christ. I want them to receive his forgiveness, to be healed by his wounds. But I'm not going to tolerate Christians who support sinful behavior and try to assist others in destroying themselves. Marriage is one facet of it. There are so many different angles to this thing. Oh, the truth needs to be exalted. And if you're a Christian, you need to know what the Word of God says. And if you're wrestling with issues, that's fine. But don't. Don't adopt the world's philosophies and practices and principles. And that's what so many have done. Christians should not support any behavior, any sinful behavior, beginning with their own. That's the starting place for crying out loud. Don't look at everyone else. Look at yourself first. You shouldn't tolerate it in your own life, let alone others. But start here. Whether that be cheating, stealing, lying, or sexual immorality, to support any of that is to support the doctrines of hell. It is to degrade the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it is, if you're a Christian supporting these things, to disgrace the bride of Christ, the church, period. Jesus came to die for sinners so that they could be reconciled to God and forgiven by Him. He came to take away their sins and He rose to give them power over sin and hope. He did not come to make a way for sinners to stay in unrepentant sin and to at the same time inherit the kingdom of God. That's biblical reality, friends. Jesus said repeatedly when he preached, repent. Turn from your sin. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what can we take away from all of this on top of what we've already learned? The risen Christ 
has the ability to come and meet with you right where you are at this present moment. And He can plunge into your depths and touch you with His healing hand. Bring those dead areas to life. He can go where no therapist, counselor, physician, specialist, and lover can go. The risen Christ can calm your fears, bring them to peace. He can heal your hurts. And He can give you what's so spectacular. It's that peace that transcends all understanding. It just goes beyond. You can have peace in the midst of the most horrific, most difficult moments in life. He can give that peace. That peace that goes beyond all understanding. I've seen it and experienced it. It's pretty amazing. The risen Christ can give you power. He can breathe it into you. He can breathe His Spirit into you. This power will help you overcome sin, temptation, and to live for Him. The risen Christ can give you purpose for your life. He can make you a member of His church and an ambassador of His gospel, which is the greatest commissioning the world has ever seen. To be the servant of Christ for the sake of the gospel is the highest. First of all, it's a high privilege to receive that from Him. And it is, a, it, is, it is an honor, it is a brilliant thing to engage in. There's nothing as satisfying as it to serve Christ and to serve Him alone. To be a minister of the gospel. To be an ambassador of the gospel. The risen Christ can wash you of all your sins and make you a new creation. Now, what must you do to receive the risen Christ in all of these wonderful blessings? If you have not received Christ as your Savior, number one, you must acknowledge that you're a sinner. That's a pretty difficult thing for people to do because they all think they're good. They all think they're okay. They all think that when God pulls out the scales in the end, the good will outweigh the bad, and He's going to let me in, and Peter's going to give me a high five and some pounds and say, I'm so glad you're here. You did so much more good than you did bad. That's what people are banking on. Well, that's not the heart of someone who recognizes that they're a sinner. That's not spiritual poverty. You think on yourself right now. Do you see yourself without sin? You can lie to yourself. You can lie to others. Second thing you must do is be willing to repent of your sin. Be willing to turn away from your self-effort, your self-attempts to save yourself through good works. <laughs> turn away from your thinking that niceness is a qualifier for heaven. Turn away from your love of sin. Number three, you must put your trust in Jesus Christ. Believe that He paid the penalty for your sin, that by His wounds you can be healed, and that salvation is only through Him. Believe that He is your only hope and way to heaven.
acknowledge, repent, and trust in Christ. You can come to Him in the quietness of prayer and confess your sin to Him. Acknowledge who you are in His very presence through prayer. His ear is never closed to the sinner who comes to Him, who draws near to confess and to trust Him and to receive Him. If you do these three things, you will be healed by His wounds. Your sins will be removed. His righteousness will be applied to you. And you will be restored to the God who created you. You will come to know the risen Christ and your life will change and never be the same. Never. I did that very thing 12 years ago. It's never been the same.